you have your Bible with you, I'd like to invite you to open it to uh, the Gospel of Mark. We are in the 26th uh, week of our journey through the Gospel of Mark, and we've arrived at chapter 7. Uh, we'll close out chapter 7 this morning, so if you will uh, find that in the Bible, we'll have the verses on the side screen. But of course, I never want that to be a deterrent to actually having your Bible with you and uh, having it open in front of you. So Mark chapter 7. Have you ever been told uh, to take your medicine? How many have you been told that? Take your medicine. I remember when I was a kid uh, being, being told that, and uh, part of it was uh, medicine doesn't necessarily taste awesome, and so once you get it in your mouth, you don't really want to swallow, and your mom will re repeat that phrase uh, to uh, take your medicine. Uh, the other part of it is, is that when you're a kid, you don't recognize that the medicine is actually going to help you. Uh, and so the idea of taking something that tastes bad uh, doesn't connect. It's kind of counterintuitive to a, a child. And then you become a parent and you realize that um, the opportunity to, uh, I guess we'll, we're going to see if I'm going to have to do something with microphone to do. So uh, when you're a parent and you're teaching, uh, trying to teach your kids, you know you've got one shot to get that in their mouth and down their gullet and before they detect how it tastes. And then you'll find yourself repeating the phrase, you know, to take uh, your medicine. As an idiom in our culture, the idea of taking your medicine has come to represent the idea of owning your responsibility when it comes to something you've done uh, or to certain circumstances. And it either means accepting the consequences that are coming your way, you gotta take your medicine, uh, or at the very least, uh, choosing to change uh, whatever it was that led to the problem in the first place. So all of us in the course of life find ourselves, not just as kids, but even as adults, having to take our medicine. Mark, in his uh, gospel account, which is based on uh, the first-hand recollections of the apostle Peter uh, recounting the story to him, in his, in his narrative, Mark is moving us toward the answer uh, to this central question, who is Jesus? And the question uh, has not yet been answered in the narrative. Uh, in fact, we've seen a lot of ideas about who Jesus is, but we've yet to come to a, a crystal clear answer to the question. We're coming close to that. We will arrive at that in chapter 8 when the disciples finally definitively offer an answer to the question. And from that point forward, for the rest of the gospel, Mark will focus on the work that Jesus has specifically come to do as the Messiah. Everything to this point uh, is laying the groundwork, attesting to who he is uh, as not only the Son of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, but as God's answer to humans, humanity's problem as the Messiah. So the tension uh, this morning is mounting between the, the religious and even political leaders and Jesus Christ. We saw last week uh, in the longest-running uh, controversy in the Gospel of Mark, uh, that Jesus and the religious leaders, as they stand off, there's, there's nothing less at stake than how it is that a man or woman can be saved. This is about uh, the, the issue of salvation. So last week, uh, we saw that the, the Pharisees uh, from Jerusalem had come uh, to where Jesus was. They were attempting to find uh, some reason to make accusation against him. Ultimately, uh, they want to get rid of him. And they appealed to uh, his disciples breaking the tradition of the Pharisees. You remember what they were doing? 
They were eating with unwashed hands, okay? Now, in our day, that just means you're hungry, and there was no sink around. But in their day, that was taboo. Like, that, that demonstrated that you didn't really care about inner purity if you would put something dirty in your mouth. And so Jesus goes on this rant about the tradition of the Pharisees, which isn't in the Old Testament. It's something they created uh, as a means of saying, if you did these things, it's legalism. If you do these things, then you can earn your way to God. And Jesus is going to say that's not how it works. Uh, the problem is not outside of who we are. The problem is on the inside. And so last week, as we looked at verses uh, 14 through 19 in particular, the last part of that passage uh, in that longest controversy, Jesus issued an all-encompassing epitaph. Like, apart from the work of God in your life, this is your epitaph. So verse 17, I'm going to, or verse 14 rather, I want to read uh, just by way of recap what Jesus said. He called the people to him after having a, a verbal sparring match with the Pharisees, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. Like, what I'm about to tell you is, uh, is uh, ground-swelling, earth-shaking, eternity-altering truth. You need to know this. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? So one of the things we've noticed in, in the last few messages is that Mark is starting to shift how he's portraying the disciples. They're slow on the uptake. Even though they're not taking the position of the religious leaders and the, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they still don't understand quite who Jesus is. So are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters in, not into his heart, but into his stomach, and then it is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So the problem isn't out there in the material world, and somehow we have to protect ourselves from being defiled. The problem is in here. The problem is a problem of the heart. Food or drink, even if it's unclean or impure, that goes into the mouth, goes to the stomach, and after maybe a little Montezuma's revenge, we get rid of it. But the problem for you and I before God is a problem of our heart. And so Jesus gives us a proof of that. He says, for within him, from, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So the Pharisees who had been saying, by keeping this external code, the tradition of the Pharisees, we've, we've built a fence around God's law to keep anyone from actually ever violating God's law. And this is what sets us apart. This is what sets us above every other person, especially Gentiles. We're right with God because we keep the rules. And Jesus says to their house of cards, not only does it not work like that, but there are none good. That's what Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 1. There are none that do good. And so as we read Jesus' indictment of the human heart, we find uh, that he's speaking to us. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to every person who ever lived. Everyone born since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. This is our problem. What's inside of us and what comes out of us is necessarily evil. Now, your evil may look better than my evil. 
but we're not the standard of comparison to one another. We have to compare ourselves to God. And Jesus is saying that by comparison to the goodness of God, uh, none do right. Our righteousness, Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. So the all-encompassing epitaph is that there is no exception to the human condition before God. We are all utterly helpless. I don't care how zealous you are. I don't care if you, like Paul says, uh, when he's recounting his resume, you could be a, a first-class Jew with all the pedigree and all the, all the, uh, the uh, degrees. It still doesn't change who you are on the inside. We can all get dressed, look the part, come to church Sunday after Sunday, uh, give away money, uh, you know, help the poor, help little old ladies across the street. Whatever it is that you think somehow says something about you, and Jesus says that's nothing. It's external. The problem you have is a problem of the heart, and that's why I've come. So Jesus destroys the fence that the Pharisees built uh, around uh, the law to keep people from violating God's law, little while knowing that the law was given to prove that we're just lawbreakers. You know that about yourself? That you're just a lawbreaker. You see, the, the, the question is the same for us as it was for the Pharisees. Do you recognize this truth about yourself? Do you? When you look in the mirror and you hear Jesus say those things, do you recognize that he's telling you the truth, no matter how painful it may be to hear it? Even if you can, like, erase some of the items off the list, at the end of the day, our problem as a human race is a problem of the heart. So the question is, how, how are we or have we responded to Jesus in our hearts? Because it starts with acknowledging that what he says about us is true. If you would experience the love and the compassion and the grace of God, if you would enter into his kingdom, there's only one way to get there. And it starts by acknowledging that he's telling you the truth about yourself. It's only as we come to embrace the truth about who we are that we have a heart problem, that, that the, it's a problem of the inner man, that we're actually set up to understand and receive what he does for us. So Jesus has this encounter, and then immediately he's going to leave the area. We only have one record of Jesus actually leaving the country that we're aware of, uh, and it, it ensues in today's passage. And I want to break it in. There's two stories here, and so I want to deal with the first story, uh, and, then, uh, and then we'll pause and we'll come back to the second. And the first encounter, Jesus is going to meet a woman. And the idea I want to drive home here is that this is about exclusivity and not exclusion. You see, the reason why the Pharisees were so proud of their tradition is because they could point to the rest of the world and say, I'm better than you. Sometimes we're, we're not much better than that in the church. We point to the world around us that doesn't go to church, they don't do what we do, and, and it kind of fosters a, a sense of pride in us that we've distinguished ourselves before God. And by doing that, we're actually excluding people that God loves. So Jesus is exclusive. By that I mean there's only one way to get right with the Father, and it's through Jesus. Uh, so it's exclusivity in this story, not about exclusion. Let's begin with verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So in this story, we see Jesus uh, crossing a variety of, of boundaries, uh, geographical, uh, ethnic, uh, gender, and even theological. 
Verse 24 uh, begins with the conjunction and, and it's simply a signaling, uh, it's a marker of addition. It's signaling a contrast. And so what we're going to discover in these two stories plays off of uh, where we started this morning with Jesus talking about a problem of the heart. Now, by way of context, uh, Tyre and Sidon, if you look at the map, uh, Tyre and Sidon are up there in that pink block. All right, so Sea of Galilee is down here. This is where most of Jesus' ministry has been. And he leaves Capernaum after having the showdown with the Pharisees, and he goes to Tyre and Sidon outside of, that's Phoenicia, outside of modern-day Lebanon, outside of uh, the, the rule of Israel or the land of Israel. And so he goes there, travels there to be alone with his disciples. He's, he's going to start shifting his focus to teach. Tyre and Sidon were both uh, seaports on the Mediterranean Sea, and there's a few things you should know about them. It's a predominantly Gentile area. There's not a lot of Jewish people there. Uh, second, uh, it's has a, uh, Phoenicia has a long-standing history of being trouble for Israel, and they're known for extreme paganism. Sounds like a perfect place for a holiday. <laughs> but Jesus leads the disciples there, and uh, one of the reasons why is because he needs to begin shifting his focus to pour more and more into the disciples to prepare them uh, for what's coming next. Uh, other reasons why he would go there, in addition to securing rest uh, for himself and teaching the disciples, we've been told numerous times they've been so busy they don't even have time to eat. But a second reason is that uh, is the kind of comes from Mark's secrecy motif, that Jesus needs to keep things secret uh, in order to work out the Father's plan. So to settle the tension that he's just stirred up by decimating the house of cards of the Pharisees, he gets out of town. Uh, psychologists talk about the uh, instinct of hum- humans to either fight, uh, flight, or, uh, or to uh, compromise. Uh, this, is, this is flight, but it's not out of fear. Jesus will bring the fight uh, when it's time, but he has to do it according uh, to the Father's plan. Uh, the book of, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, uh, we read these words uh, in verse, beginning in verse 25. <clears throat> He said, uh, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit, uh, quoting Psalm 2, says, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, look, Lord, look upon their threats and give you to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And Paul tells us, or or Luke tells us in the book of Acts, that uh, part of the reason why Jesus retreats when he does is because he's about the Father's plan that he's, he's going to allow no man to rush what it is that he's been sent to do. And so even his being handed over in Jerusalem to be killed, according to Acts chapter 4, is according to the Father's providential plan. And so Jesus would get away from time to time just to refocus on that. And he didn't want to be known uh, for being entire. The third and final reason, and this is the most important for our passage, is because he's going to illustrate uh, from the previous uh, exchange regardle- uh, regarding this idea of clean and unclean. But Jesus goes to Tyre, uh, finds a place to hide with the disciples, and yet Jesus could not prevent people from discovering where he was. Verse 25, 
Verse 25 says, But immediately, euthus, one of Mark's favorite words, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So the, this, this meeting is, is going to be a vivid example of what it looks like to have true faith a preview of what the disciples' ministry is going to be about after Jesus is crucified, buried, and then raised again. The controversy that we have seen with the Pharisees will continue for them. And what they're going to experience, uh, which they've been slow to pick up on, is this isn't just about rescuing uh, the Israelites. It's about saving those who are far from God. So this woman comes to, uh, this Phoenician woman comes to Jesus, and it says she fell down. The, the word uh, is, is the word that we derive, our English word prostrate from, uh, that she fell down before him. And the attitude behind this word uh, is that it, it implies her humble uh, contrition. She's desperate. She has a heartfelt penitence about the situation that she finds herself in with her daughter. Now, few had so much going against them with regard to Jewish law and Jewish protocol uh, as this woman would. And uh, Mark is going to highlight that for us. Verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. So let's begin with the woman. First, uh, she's a woman. Uh, second, she's a Gentile woman. Third, she's probably uh, unclean uh, by purity standards because of her daughter's condition, and she's been around her, caring for her. And then fourth, she's also from a pagan culture and probably a pagan uh, or an idol worshiper herself. That combination alone uh, would put her beneath the dignity of any upstanding rabbi, and yet she's heard of Jesus. And so she comes to Jesus with her circumstance, and this uh, verse says she begged. That means to ask repeatedly. Her request is marked by a sense of desperation. Uh, she knows that only Jesus can help. She's tried every other pagan idol, and nothing has helped, so she's willing to risk it on Jesus. And Matthew's telling of this story, she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord. O son of David, that's a, a messianic recognition. So uh, though she lives in a foreign country, uh, far from God, there's something that she knows about Jesus, and she approaches him as such. The disciples, ever slow on the uptake and wanting a holiday, in Matthew's gospel respond this way. The disciples beg Jesus to send her away, for she is crying out after us. So Jesus has this opportunity to respond to a woman who's begging for help, and he says in verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, this is figurative language. Jesus immediately goes to telling a parable. And to this point, when Jesus speaks in parables, even his disciples don't understand. In Jewish culture, uh, because, of their, because they considered themselves upright and close to God, they looked at the Gentile world as less than. They called them dogs. Now, what you need to know is that in Greek, there are two names for dog. There's the dog that's a wild, ravenous, roaming the countryside kind of dog. And then there's Fluffy, your household pet. And while at this particular time, Israelites would not have had household pets, uh, nevertheless, the parable stands. Uh, and so Jesus tells her, first, the first priority is for me to take care of the children of Israel, technon. That means biological children. That's the Greek term there. 
And he says by doing this, uh, he, he puts an emphasis on the bread. So he says, first things first, I have to take care of uh, the children of Israel, the technon. Most specifically, I have to take care of the disciples. And while I should be feeding the disciples who have a pivotal mission coming, I shouldn't take their bread and give it to you. There's a very important uh, parallel across uh, these, the stories that we're covering from the feeding of the 5,000, which dealt with bread, to this story, to next week, the feeding of the 4,000. And bread is the bridge across them all. Now, what you need to understand is that the barriers that Jesus seems to be throwing up when he when he's seemingly insults her is not intended to drive her away. Rather, it's to test her understanding and to showcase her faith. Jesus uses space and place to demonstrate the truth that there are no unclean and clean categories of people. He emphatically underscored that. We're all in the same boat. None are good. We're helpless. We're hopeless. And though it seems like the hardest words, some of the hardest words that Jesus ever spoke to suggest that the woman is a dog, uh, they're clearly not derogatory when she responds to him, not by being put off, but by accepting his premise. Verse 28, but she answered, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs are under the table, under the table, eat the children's bread. So this is, uh, this is uh, uh, I wish you could, you could see it in, in full, in the, you can, the way you can see it in the Greek, but she has, uh, she's not only uh, humble, she's also very shrewd because she takes what Jesus has offered to her, accepts it, and then in response to him, she makes a subtle distinction. He uses the word technon, which stands for biological children, but when she speaks back to him, she says the, chil- the, the word children is the word, Greek word pideon, which means not only biological children, but also servants in the house. So she's humbly taking her place. She's, she, she recognizes that what he's saying is true, that that litany of things you said about the problem of the human heart, that's me. I've got no leg to stand on. But before a compassionate God, even crumbs fall. Even the superabundance of grace falls to the undeserving. I'm just asking for a little bit of grace. And the window of opportunity that Jesus gives her is when he says, first. He didn't say the bread only goes to the children of Israel. He said it's appropriate to begin first with the children of Israel, which means that after, others might get bread as well. So Jesus was telling her that his first priority was the disciples, but this is not to the exclusion of people like her, people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, from your seed, I will bless the peoples of the earth. From the very beginning, in the Proto-Evangelion, it was God's intent to send his son into the world, not just for Jewish people, but for Gentiles like you and me. For everyone who would come to recognize how hopeless they are apart from him, how desperate we are to be forgiven of our sin, that we could turn to him and find hope. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 says, it is, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, speaking of Messiah, Jesus, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. When Jesus uh, departs uh, to be at the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he's going to tell his disciples, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
Jesus isn't trying to shun this woman by, by giving her a parable to understand. He needs her to recognize her need and then to humbly persist for grace. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 in the last book of the Bible, uh, we read these words. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the Syrophoenician woman is clearly in Jesus' view. It's just that what changes a life eternally has yet to happen. Jesus has to remain focused on the plan that the Father has for him. The scriptures say salvation comes from the Jews. Jesus came to his own people and his own people received him not. Yet to as many who will receive him, to those who believe in his name, he become, gives the right to become children, uh, sons and daughters of God. But that purchase has yet to happen, which is why Jesus remains focused uh, on Jerusalem. This woman's reply to Jesus shows her understanding. She has no qualms with how Jesus sees her. She recognizes how desperate her need is. She has a deep personal respect for him, a firm determination and faith just to persist. Surely, the compassionate goodness of God could spare a morsel of grace for me. This is so set against the stubborn resistance of the Pharisees. The Syrophoenician woman gave Jesus the answer he was looking for. Verse 29 and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. This is the only miracle that Jesus performs from a distance without even uttering a command. She so understands uh, what Jesus is saying to her, her need for him, that she steps into that. And because of that, she's able to, to demonstrate true faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 6 says, It is impossible to please God apart from faith, for those who would appear before God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We've watched for cha seven chapters people come into Jesus' life for a little magical cure. They wanted a quick fix, and then they walk away not recognizing who He is. For the first time in Mark's gospel, a Gentile woman in another country gets it. She sees her need for Jesus. The ex this leads to the idea that the only hope for humanity, this is the message of exclusivity, the only hope for humanity is Jesus. This woman's faith is magnified when you consider what little she knew. She didn't have the privileges of the Pharisees. She didn't have the opportunity to study the Old Testament. She just knew how desperately she was broken, how much she needed his help for her daughter, and she believed. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus, Matthew records Jesus' words to her. His commendation is that she has great faith. How is that possible? How is it possible for someone so clearly on the outside to see Jesus, to understand her need for him, and to believe? Well, the answer is that she's the first person in Mark's gospel to actually hear him and to understand. Some of us hear him and we're offended by what he says. Some of us hear him and, and we don't want to come to terms with the reality of our own heart. 
we can procrastinate and put it off by distracting ourselves in a world with lots of other things to do. We can do that for so long. And so we turn away from him, but not her. She knew that he was her only hope. This parable disclosed to her the mystery of the kingdom of God. She wasn't distant or resistant. She wasn't prideful. She wasn't trying to defend her position like the Pharisees. She just did what Jesus commands a person to do if they would be forgiven, if they would experience the kingdom of God and experience his word. She entered into the parable. She took her place. There's only one king in the story. There's, there's only one redeemer. There's only one Messiah, and then there's all of us. And some of us will spend our lives writing ourselves out of the story because we can't humble ourselves to the part that we play. She took her part in the parable, and it allowed her to be claimed by it, and she got what she was looking for. She's the first person to actually hear the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. I want to ask uh, my ushers to come forward. This morning, uh, we're celebrating communion. Communion is not a parable. Lest you close your Bible, we're not done. Uh, Communion is not a parable. Uh, Communion is a a rite that our Savior instituted. Uh, It tells a story, uh, and the story that it tells is a story of what God has done uh, in sending His Son to come for us. And for you and I, there is this profound invitation to enter in to what Jesus did. Now, if you haven't entered in, the Bible actually cautions you not to do this. But if you've entered into the story, uh, like the woman from Syrophoenicia, then, then what you're saying is, I know how desperately dirty and defiled I am on the inside. I just want a new heart. I just want a new stake at life. I want what Jesus has to offer, and I recognize that he's the only one offering it. And the proof of what he's offering is what he did for me. We've yet to get there in the Gospel of Mark, but what he's ultimately going to do, the Scripture says, is lay down his life. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of ourselves to our own way. And he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when we celebrate communion, we're, we're, it's not a parable. The part that we're taking in it is that, that we put Jesus on the cross. That the brokenness of his body, that, that's on me. That the shedding of his blood, I had every part in that. Because all I've done is continue to perpetuate the sinfulness that's been passed down to me for generation after generation after generation. I own that. i got to take my medicine. If I had been the only one, Jesus would have died because I desperately need him. And to come to the place where we understand that the broken body and the shed blood is how we enter into the story, then it avails us of the opportunity of reaping what he did for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, as we enter into his story, we might become the righteousness of God. So we're going to celebrate communion. I'll get you guys uh, to start passing out the elements. Thank you, ma'am. And then I'll keep going. Do you understand the exclusive claims of Christianity. I sometimes talk to believers and they will tell me that uh, Jesus is their Savior, that uh, 
but they have a hard time sharing with other people because everybody has kind of a right to choose their own path. Friends, there is no other path. This is, this is the exclusive claims of the creator of the universe. When he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That in his sacrifice, and his sacrifice alone, we find something to override the ugliness of the human heart. We find an answer to our sinfulness. We find hope for our helplessness. And so as believers, every time we come to this table, uh, we're just reminding ourselves of all that we have in Jesus. Yes, his, his claims are exclusive. We have an exclusive message. There is no other way to get to God. And if you spend a lifetime rejecting this message, you will spend an eternity separated from Him. That's not unloving to be truthful. The truth is, Jesus is the only hope for humanity. And so this morning, we honor Him by taking the bread, His body which was broken for us. And because uh, of the shedding of His blood, uh, there is remission of sin, there is forgiveness. And in Him, we have been given new life. Uh, he has created a new covenant in His blood that makes us heirs, uh, co-heirs with Him, brothers and sisters with Christ, and children of the living God, our Father. And so we honor the sacrifice of our Savior by taking the cup. Thank you all. Now, if you struggle with the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and His claims, if you would put a bumper sticker on your car that many ways exist to get to Him, then I would implore you to understand this morning that you do not yet fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, in order for us to end well, then I want to look briefly at the second encounter that Mark tells us about that happened in a predominantly Gentile area. And this is, we move from uh, exclusivity now to in inclusivity. So Jesus' message is exclusive. There is only one way to get to God. But it's also at the same time inclusive in that anyone may freely come if they recognize their deep need for him and they turn to him in faith. So Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 31 says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. The story is only recorded by Mark, but it, uh, like the previous story, it leads to a confession about who Jesus is that serves as an example to the disciples of how they should be reacting to Jesus since they're slow on the uptake. Now, if you look at the map real quickly, uh, Jesus does take a circuitous route uh, back to where he's headed. So he goes from Tyre to Sidon when he's in fact headed to the Decapolis, which is uh, Greek for the ten cities. He's going to wind up there, and it's a long journey. And during this time, we don't know a lot about what's going on, except for that we know he's intentionally investing himself in the disciples because the day is approaching when he's going to lay his life down uh, and uh, he's going to leave the work in their hands. So the last time when Jesus winds back up in the Decapolis, the last time he was there was when he met the demoniac with the legion of demons inside of him. And you remember when he cast those demons out into a herd of swine? And the swine ran off the hill, and then Jesus told him to stay. He wouldn't let him go with him, but to tell everyone what had happened to him. So since Jesus has been away, this demon, had, this de de former demoniac, has been telling the story. He's been sharing what Jesus did for him. 
And so when Jesus shows up in verse 32, and they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. So Jesus has been away. He gets back. You remember when he was there last time, they asked him to leave. They didn't even want him there. Now, because of the demoniac, the former demoniac telling the story about Jesus, everybody wants to be around. And so they bring him, this man who is deaf uh, and who has a speech impediment. That means he's unable to hear and he's unable to speak. This was thought in the day to be a sign of mental handicap. So this particular gentleman has probably suffered stigma his whole life. Uh, he's been uh, derided uh, as, uh, by the assumption that oftentimes these kinds of ailments are the judgment of God upon you, and he's been distanced by other people around him. But he has a few friends, and they bring him to Jesus. And they'd say the same thing the Syrophoenician woman said. They beg him, or, that is, they earnestly urge him, they implore him to lay his hands on their friend. So verse 33 through 35 and he taking him aside from the crowd privately. Okay, so let's stop there. So first of all, when, when they bring this man to Jesus, what Jesus is going to do is one-on-one. -on -one. This person isn't a show. He's not someone that Jesus is going to exploit for his purposes. He takes him uh, to a secluded spot not to further add to his embarrassment. What Jesus is about to do must be done privately. And there's two reasons behind that. Number one, because what he's going to do might be misinterpreted as somehow hocus-pocus, magic. And then the more important reason is because Jesus cares about people. Whatever it is that's bound up in your heart, whatever it is you would be mortified to stand up here and tell everyone about, Jesus knows it. He's not looking to shame you. He loves you. He'll come to you privately, personally. And change your heart. So then we continue. So he takes him aside uh, in verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephratha, that is, be opened. And he, his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now, this is a first, okay? And as we come to a first, we ought to be asking ourselves, what in the absolute world was Jesus doing? Putting his fingers in his ears. That sounds theatrical, uh, like spitting and then touching the guy's tongue. Until you pause long enough to recognize that this man could not hear. He was incapable of verbal communication. So Jesus spoke to him in a language that he could understand. This is why he took him aside, not to embarrass him, but to communicate to him and to make sure that he understood. Jesus spoke to him in sign language, non-verbally. And I'm telling you, it makes me love my Savior all the more. Four signs. Put his fingers in his ear to say to this deaf man, I I'm going to remove what's blocking your hearing. He spits. Spit in that day was considered, not everybody's spit, but some people's spit was considered to be special, like, you know, and Jesus would certainly qualify, but there's nothing magical about his spit. He was just communicating to the man, I'm going to remove what's blocking your vocal cords. And then he looked up, 
And in looking up, he was signifying uh, to this mute, uh, deaf man that what, what is happening to you can only be done by the power of God. It is not magic. For your heart to be changed, for you to overcome some sin that you can't shake, nothing but the power of God through the work of Jesus Christ can change you. And then finally, he sighed. This is the only miracle where Jesus emotes like this. He sighs, meaning he's, he's deeply sorrow, sorrowful and even angry at the ravages of the fall. This man was not born this way because he was cursed. We, we struggle in a world full of brokenness. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. We created a world of sinfulness, and we keep doubling down on it like we're not inviting the judgment of God on our nation, and we are. And then he spoke in Aramaic, Ephratha. Everything here is Greek, except for this word. It's so indelibly etched in Peter's mind because Peter understands that when Jesus spoke Aramaic, he was speaking in this man's language. The first word he was going to hear out of the mouth of the king was his own language, Ephratha. And then he translates it for his audience, the Romans, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. There's a vivid and concrete term in Greek. It, it's, it's as though the, the tongue is bound in ropes. And suddenly that, that was broken off and he could speak. And it says he spoke plainly, correctly, immediately, no grammar lessons, miraculously he spoke and could be understood. And then verse 33, 36, uh, Jesus, again sensitive about the timing, returns to secrecy, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They just couldn't keep silent. How could he? A man who had never spoken before, who couldn't hear, suddenly has an encounter with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and his whole life has changed, and the last thing he wants to do is keep his mouth shut about it. The command to silence is a reminder that knowledge of Jesus or about his, by his wonders alone is inadequate knowledge. Knowledge uh, that is adequate, that leads to proclamation, must await the revelation that the ultimate mystery that Jesus has brought with the inbreaking of God's kingdom can only be understood, can only be told through his suffering on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. This is what is central or core to Christianity. As Paul said, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, by grace through faith in every age, in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus appeals for secrecy, but He doesn't get it. The outcome in verse 37 And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all these things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were astonished, that is, greatly amazed, overwhelmed, beyond measure, exceedingly, super abundantly. And they said, He has done all things well, all things, substance and in spirit, and well, quietly, modestly, graciously. Jesus acted out in parable fashion, the incarnation. He met this man where he was. He came into his world. He could speak his language, and he changed his life. They said he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. By 
the allusion here when, when he does all things well is to Genesis chapter 1 when they survey creation at the end of every act of creation. It says that God said, it is good. And so Jesus, like the Father, creates goodness. Mark doesn't always um, use uh, Old Testament uh, citations because he's speaking to a Gentile audience, but here he does. He says he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, and the word for hear uh, is the Greek word kophos. He's used it once already when earlier in this passage. It's only used in one other place in the entirety of Scripture, and it's in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 6. Mark doesn't always use Old Testament citations, but when he does, they are load-bearing beams, and this one is. Isaiah chapter 35, verse three, uh, uh, 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. This is speaking of what Messiah will do. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. They survey uh, creation as they consider Jesus, and they look uh, with anticipation to the prophetic promises of Messiah. It's further proof that Jesus is fulfilling what God's Son was sent to do. That just as uh, God's Son uh, is working in redemption, so God has worked in creation, and everything they do is good and nothing is lacking. This leads to my last thought on inclusivity. No one is beyond the mercy, grace, and compassion of the gospel of Christ. And once you've been impacted by it, then you're compelled to be involved in it. Jesus was pleading for secrecy here because he has yet to get to Calvary. He has to die in order to affect our salvation. But to the degree that you and I have actually encountered Jesus Christ, that our sins have been forgiven, that our tongue has been loosed, that our ears have been opened, that our eyes can now see, whatever it is that we would describe God's work in our lives, we are compelled to be involved in it. It's inclusive. That means no one that we know is beyond the grace and mercy and compassion of God, and He is counting on us to tell other people about Him. In short, church, we have to take our medicine. We have the cure for every ailment that's plaguing humanity. There are no solutions long-term coming out of Washington. The world of kings and and powers will never uh, arrive at a conclusion that will fix a fallen human race. We hold the answer. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The question I have for you as I close is, do you possess the zeal? Do you possess the same kind of zeal of the, of the people, uh, the friends of this man and, and the man himself, uh, to tell people about what God has done for you? Are you the deaf mute that He's made whole, that He's given a new lease on life? You have a story to tell. Tell it about Jesus. Do you have a friend who needs to be carried to Jesus? Who are you sharing Jesus with? And if you're here this morning and you're more like the disciples, you need spiritual hearing and you need your tongue healed. You need your heart changed. That I would implore you not to ignore this message. The hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and the church that continues to proclaim what God has done for us in Him. If you know Christ, there's someone in your life that needs to hear what Jesus has done for you. And I would challenge you, don't let this week go by without telling someone about your story. And your story, if it's a gospel-centered story, gives Jesus all the glory and not you. So like a great drama rising and falling action, Mark is building the plot, developing the characters, recording the events that will lead up to the final outcome when we, like all of Mark's readers, will confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the gospel is the hope for helpless people like you and me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of our Savior. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the Savior that you are. That in a world full of people, a a history, a timeline full of fallen image bearers, you have the capacity to care personally, individually for each one of us. You know our sin long before we do. And in telling us the truth that you're the only way whereby we can be made new, you're telling us because you love us. And you want to draw us to this inclusive, this exclusive but inclusive gospel that makes us whole and puts us right before you. I pray, Father, for the individual here this morning who has never uh, yielded their life to you, that they would recognize the urgency of turning their life over to you because none of us are guaranteed another day in this life. Like the Syrophoenician woman, we have no standing before you. We, we don't deserve to be before you. We just want to take our part in this incredible story that you're telling and avail ourselves of the benefit of grace. And then for the rest of us, for those who become sons and daughters of the King, I pray, God, that you would motivate us to, to look around us with eyes open, that we would not be like the disciples fumbling along trying to understand, but we would understand that because the claims of Christianity are exclusive, then we must make the inclusivity of it known to everyone whose path we cross for your glory, for their eternal good, and for our joy. And we ask it all today in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to close with uh, words from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, uh, 13 through 16, as soon as I get there. And this is a reminder uh, to you, church, as you live this week. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the work we have been left to do, church. So as we go out this week, let's be sensitive to the Spirit. Let's look discerningly into the lives of broken people, and let's share something that's hopeful. All right? God bless you. You're dismissed.